Welcome to the Filmmaker and Fans Podcast. In this week's episode, we discuss the 2003 film Lost in Translation, written and directed by Sofia Coppola. Using Lost in Translation as our foundation, we explore topics such as the writing and directing process, the use of visual symbolism in filmmaking, and the importance of actors in conveying complex emotions. As a reminder, if you'd like to see the actual scene we watched at the beginning of the episode, head on over to YouTube and check out this week's video with the link in the show notes. All right, let's do it. So episode three. Oh, I'm excited about this one. I know you picked the films, but this has been, uh, this is an adventure for me to like revisit these things and just dig in and it's been a blast. So Lost in Translation, it's, uh, I mean, a lot of people's, but it's one of my favorites. Um, so some, some basic information before we get going. The log line for this one is a faded movie star and a neglected young woman form an unlikely bond after crossing paths in Tokyo. Uh, a lonely aging movie star named Bob Harris and a conflicted newlywed, Charlotte, meet in Tokyo. Bob is there to film a Japanese whiskey commercial, and Charlotte is accompanying her celebrity photographer husband. Strangers in a foreign land, the two find escape, distraction, and understanding amidst the bright Tokyo lights after a chance meeting in the quiet lull of a hotel bar. And that sets it up. So the scene today that we're going to watch, I was thinking we would do the, uh, the Suntory Time scene. Uh, one of the first, wow. it's, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's a staple of the whole thing and it, and it really encapsulates all of it. So let me pull it up. Any thoughts before we, before we get to the scene? Um, no, just my own long log for the film, um, which is from, I think my observation, Samuel Beckett, it's a film in which nothing happens and that's why it's so <laughs> fantastic. So stay table no any it's just it's, it's i know i said this last scene this last uh, episode too but it's just so good the scene especially as part of the overall film and what the film was about and even the title i mean so before we get into anything questions or notes or anything like that the very first thing is uh you always hear the uh, show it don't say it from a writing perspective and I think this is such a fantastic example of, you know, there are a lot of movies where they, they, they get the title of the movie in there and the dialogue, they say it. Uh, this is, it's literally showing the title of the movie as a scene, this lost in translation idea. Uh, it's just so fantastic. I, I just absolutely love this scene. Yeah, no, me too. And um, as a philosophic link, um, you know, uh, Camus and uh, Sartre famously argued over an essay um, that one of them wrote about the nature of translation that implied that you can't understand being um, until you understand the nature of translation, which is taking uh, another language and then encoding it um, so that someone else can understand it, which is you take a concept um, that someone can't understand because it's in a different language. And then you have to re-encode it. But the process of encoding is, of course, you intervening in the process of understanding. Um, we are controlled by the way a language shapes ideas. So we think we can understand something because it's presented in a code to us, but we're not really sure that what we're being presented is the essence of the idea that's being shared. 
So the translator here, he thinks, is not telling him the truth. But that goes in this one scene. It's brilliantly chosen by you. It's the entire movie because our characters are lost, hence the title of the film, throughout. But they're not only lost in terms of language. They're lost in a sentient understanding of the world. They don't know what they should be doing. He, as an older man in a failed marriage, at the end of his career, doesn't know what he should be doing, what's going to make him happy. Um, he's apparently failing his children in some respects. His wife is resentful. And rather than his wife and him talking about the relationship, they're looking at carpet samples. Um, <laughs> and that, you know, T.S. Eliot once said, our, our lives are measured out in, in, in coffee spoons or teaspoons, whichever it was. But the idea that the banal ultimately becomes more important to us than the big philosophic underpinnings that define, define um, or translate our lives to ourselves. Um, he's got bigger issues to deal with than carpet samples, but he's not doing it. Uh, the Scarlett Johansson character, the young girl, same thing at the beginning of a marriage that will become surely a failed marriage um, without a sense of who she is. Um, she doesn't know what she wants to do. She's trying. She's experimenting different things. Her husband's got a career that's going and uh, literally abandoning her. Just mm -hmm. as Bill Murray's abandoning his wife every single day to go off and bring in money. So she's left in this landscape of emptiness. And just very quickly, the landscape, they're in a foreign environment. But we're all in a foreign environment all the time. We're never really in command. Um, of our world. We may earn some money, we may get some attention, we may get some fame and some recognition, but ultimately we enter this world um, uncertain, not possessing language. We gain language um, and think we got the world figured out. We suddenly realize that we don't have the world figured out and we die in confusion about what it all meant and what our intention was. Sure, we may have some religiosity and we may impose an order on the chaos, but the world is pretty chaotic. So if you had to take a literary objective correlative for what life is, it is people lost in a world uh, that they can't fully understand and people talking to us in codes that we don't fully get. So it may not be in Japanese, but it may be in some other thing that we think we want to have explained to us in a language, but even when it is explained to us in a language, that language is always inadequate. I may be elevating this to a higher philosophic level than it deserves, but I don't think so. I think this is a film in which nothing happens except a profound examination of the, our shared human condition. Uh, this is fantastic because you're hitting all my talking points already. So this is beautiful. Um, <laughs> let's, uh, for my own, for my own personal organization in, in mind, let's, uh, I want to get into all of this. So this is actually the second one that we've done where it has a, uh, a writer director at the helm. So Sofia Coppola is the writer director of this film. Uh, and I'm curious, I want to talk about direction and vision first as kind of the, the broad umbrella of discussion. So just like Lady Bird in episode two, this is this film has a, a single vision uh, for, for a writer director that really drives the whole film. Uh, and, and apparently Sophia's personal experiences in Tokyo actually influenced uh, the film's authenticity and the dynamic of the film and the output. Um, so as far as a first question. I'm curious, uh, when it comes to all the hats, as a writer-director yourself, can you talk a little bit about, uh, to start, how personal experiences actually influence your work and how you bring them into your work? 
Yeah, I, I think the, the great thing about being a, a writer-director rather than just a director or writer is that the obligation is not interpretive, but expressive. So when you're handed a script and told to direct it, you inevitably or invariably try to figure out what the writer's intentions were because they're already established. Uh, sure, uh, Orson Welles may have taken a, a pulp novel off a book stand in an airport when told he had a contract with the studio and that became In Touch of Evil. But that doesn't mean that the text isn't more important to us than that um, as, a, as a director. So we can have predispositions. We may look for material that best illustrates our predispositions, but ultimately it can't be wholly and completely our voice. When we write something ourselves, we're spending a lot of time suffering because the thing about writing is it's more fun to having written something than having to write it. Um, and it's a struggle. And we are alone with ourselves all the time. Now, the process of writing could be one of two things. Either we can use the existing orthodoxy about the way story works and simply be obsessed with story. But then what's the purpose of writing? Um, writing an all creative process is about the discovery of understanding rather than starting with an understanding and illustrating, which what most writers, I think, misunderstand. They think they've got to tell a story because they told that the story, as we've talked on about here before, is sacrosanct. And that's the end rather than the means. I don't think it is the end. I think it's a means to getting to the big ideas that you want to examine. So if you want to write a film about alienation, about being lost, about not being able to um, to mediate the world, to translate the world in an order and structure you understand, then you really have to be a writer-director. Otherwise, you're compromised right from the beginning. To your point about personal experience, all observation comes from personal experience. But what is experience? Exper we all ex can experience the same thing, but we don't interpret that same thing in the same way. So we can go to Japan. Uh, but we will experience Japan in different ways, even though Japan remains physically and objectively the same. And it is that interpretation that is what identifies ourselves uh, as individual artists and gives us our unique voice. So it's not just that she went to Japan. It's that she was the daughter of a famous uh, film director. She was married to a um, celebrity. Um, who Spike Jones, who's a, a profound uh, director mm -hmm. in his own right. And the cheap shots that they give to Sof Sofia Coppola that he must have influenced her mightily because her other films weren't uh, as good, ultimately are, are, are a nonsense. We're all influenced by other people. I've noticed recently that even parts of my own films are appearing in other movies. Does that mean that those people saw my movies and imitated them? maybe to flatter myself, but maybe not. Maybe we all are part of the same zeitgeist and stimulated in the same way, but we're also stimulated not only by the things that we all share, but by our individual experiences, the people we live with, our relationships, the people we speak to. So she's had a unique life around creative people who were probably self-absorbed a little bit, as all creative people are. Hmm. And she could be speaking to the nature of being around self-absorbed artists who are doing possibly important work and feeling marginalized without talking specifically about the shared experience we would all have 
that we went to Japan with. So I think that's why this film is so significant, is it speaks to both the, the general uh, from her experiences and the specific of her experiences, but that could only be done if she herself uh, was the writer. And it goes to the sincerity of it. I'll say one other thing about it. Um, when you're living something, it matters to you profoundly. You can't look at anyone's individual life when they're in it and say, well, your life is banal and unimportant. You must feel that you're missing the big issues because the issues in your life are your big issues. Mm -hmm. And for her, who was probably fairly insulated from the caprices of, of the ordinary world, being a very wealthy family and with great fame and probably bodyguards and all the rest of it, um, it could be argued that she's not having... A, a common experience, but she's having experience all the same. And that experience that she was having intensely was the sense of alienation, of uncertainty, of being near um, fame and certainty and someone else with a great sense of purpose, which was her husband in the film, but may have been her father in real life, or could have been her husband, Spike Jones was pretty successful and famous already but not knowing what you want to do with your own life. Remember, Sophie Coppola, I think was an actress at one time. I think she made, maybe she tried photography, I can't remember. And then ended up as, I think, a very quite brilliant director. But all those things are illustrated in this. And when I say nothing happens, nothing happens in the traditional film narrative sense. No gun chase, no gun, gun fights, no chases, no big obstacle that's overcome, no profound life change. There is a big change in understanding, but ultimately it's all observation about small but significant behaviors that can only come from a person who's lived this life, where those small changes on the outside are profound and meaningful to someone who's living it. Yeah, and talking about personal experiences, I mean, this is, yeah, so you've already pointed to it, but Francis Ford Coppola was obviously her father, or is her father, or was her father. Um, she, you know, life experiences as a child, she was on the set of a film like Apocalypse Now. So from, from, from her entire life, from birth, she's been plugged into this world and been absorbing whether knowing or not all these, all these pieces and levers. And we talked about all the ingredients that goes into this. She was surrounded and immersed in this world from, from day one. Uh, so that, that's actually a really interesting point about her experience in Tokyo. Obviously, we all have unique experiences, but hers, specific to film, was very different than most, I would assume, uh, when she visits a place like this and, and what she takes in and what she's noticing. You, you mentioned observation. Um, yeah, those are great points. Okay, so staying on, on writing then. And I'm just saying she's not really interested. For someone who's the daughter of a writer um, and uh, was married to a director who wrote, I think, uh, and was surrounded by writers all the time, she's amazingly uninterested in story. Um, she's interested in experience and observations about behavior, but there's no obsession with story structure for her at all, which to me is one of her great charms in all her work. And she, so this, <laughs> we'll get to this in the trivia, but there's one thing that I, that I found that apparently the screenplay wasn't even written as a traditional screenplay. It was more an outline and it was left for them to, to figure out a lot on the day when they're actually in principle and, and shooting this. Um, so even from like, even, even in that stage of writing the story, it, it wasn't clearly defined, um, which I think was interesting. 
Okay, so let's stay on writing then, and um, specifically characters and, and obstacles. So uh, this this film uh, it explores a lot of different themes and a lot of different topics, but one of which, and we've already pointed to it, is is really this disorientation and loneliness that comes from being in in a, in a foreign culture and, and an environment, and what that can create for for people. Uh, and you know. Sofia Coppola even uses these cultural and, and language barriers as, uh, as actual like key elements in the film's narrative. So from a writing perspective, when it comes to obstacles for characters uh, in your story, uh, do you actively create obstacles as you're writing or do you, do you find them more as, you, as you're developing and, and writing these characters? Great question, because this goes to my old saw that I come back to all the time, which is the orthodoxy of, of the way we're supposed to write. And there is a principle generally applied that the character's journey from the beginning to the end of the film is about their overcoming obstacles and then the resolution in terms of change in the world of themselves as a result of overcoming those obstacles. You know, um, in Indian religion, Hinduism, there's a character called Ganesh, um, which is this elephant, which um, a lot of people misinterpret as the god of uh, obstacles, or that Ganesh creates obstacles. He works in opposition to your intention. The real understanding of Ganesh is that um, he creates obstacles so that you grow as a result of those obstacles. Ganesh is benign, not evil. Um, And even though diverting you from your most linear course, that's the the object. That's how advanced in some way Hinduism is, is understanding that if things are easy, we don't evolve or grow. So certainly a lot of what filmmaking is has to do with conflict. Conflict very often grows out of obstacles. So I don't think it's inevitable because What's interesting here is that nexus of what conflict and obstacles should be, which is someone has an intention and there's an obstacle to that intention, a goal, something's blocking them. Neither character has an intention. So it doesn't matter what the obstacles are because there can't be any obstacles when you don't know which direction you're going. To use an obvious metaphor, if you're on a road and you're just driving aimlessly, you're on holiday in some foreign country, and you rent a car, and you come to a roadblock. It's not like, oh, I have to go down this road, but it's blocked. No, you just go down a different road because the journey is what matters to you, not the destination. And that's what's happening here. These characters have no clearly defined destination. And if you have no clearly defined destination, then you can't have obstacles because you're not going anywhere. So both Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson are lost. They both uh, are like Beckett, who uh, Samuel Beckett spends so much time on this, where characters in Beckett plays will say quite openly, particularly in Waiting for Godot, we're just killing time because we have no idea what we should be doing. So at one point in, in Waiting for Godot, the characters begin speaking French to each other. and Afterwards, they say, why did we do that? We did that to fill some hours or minutes on the clock. 
And Beck is so profound in that regard because so many of us um, may not be speaking French, but we may be surfing the internet or watching the Super Bowl or doing something else that has nothing to do with our goal or our evolution. We're killing time. And that's what most of us do most of the time. Uh, we're, we may have individual purpose. We have to go to a job and earn a living. You and I do this. We need money. Um, but we don't always have an overweening philosophical about our purpose uh, for our lives. You know, we're talking about children. Children are beautiful and wonderful things. But while they're young, they provide uh, an inevitable purpose. We've got to look after them and rear them and make them into the best uh, version of themselves. But they will grow and leave. It's interesting when they do, my son's much older now, that when you look at your life at that point and say, okay, now I've reared my child, what's my purpose now? And even when you're rearing a child, you still got to have other individual philosophic purpose. So what's great about this film, and it goes to exactly what you're talking about, I think, is that um, there are no obstacles because they have no purpose. They have no direction. They have no intention and they have no destination. And that is the obstacle, is that they have no <laughs> destination. They don't know what they're going to do. Now, uh, spoiler alert, people have seen the film, at, we're hoping that they're going to fall in love, sleep together. They sleep together but without sex because they have no intention mm -hmm. of sex, that they can become a relationship. And then um, he's married, she's married, and then he has to go back and face his wife. And then he has to make a decision about which woman he wants to be with. And then she has to make a decision about whether she goes with a much older man or stays with her husband. And then there's the traditional film narrative. There are the obstacles, there's the conflict, and there's the destination. Who are they gonna go with? Will they find true love and stay together? But instead of telling the story from that point on, which would be the natural and organic way to tell this story in traditional motion picture movie sense, American movie sense, she starts the story way earlier than that and finishes it without that happening. It does not happen. If you haven't seen the film, I'm going to ruin it for you. They never have a relationship. They don't because that would run against everything this film is actually about. But what she does say to him is one of the great questions in all of cinema. And I wish I could remember exactly word for word. I think she says, does it get easier? Um, but yeah. it doesn't matter what she says. What she's really trying to say is, does life have meaning and purpose? You're older. Do you have this figured out? And he gives her a fairly oblique answer, but even more beautiful. Uh, they part without the emotional relationship. He's being driven to the airport, and he sees her on the street. He jumps out of his car, and he runs to her. And once again, trained as we are in the American movie sensibility, we're presuming that he's going to give her a kiss on the lips and tell her he'll love her forever and he'll never forget her or let's run off together. Instead, in this brilliant bit of filmmaking, he whispers something in her ear, which is obviously the resolution of the film, and we don't hear it. Yeah. So if there is an answer, if there is purpose, if there is structure, and it is order, it is denied to us, at least in the context of the film. It's a whispered notion, whispered to someone else, and we don't know whether it's specious or profound, but we don't hear it. It's like hearing the code of life 
in a different language that we don't know how to translate. It's an act of genius and the film's a product of genius. Yep. Okay. So we're, <laughs> I want to get to the, the ending I want to talk Sorry. about in a big way. No, 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 no. This is, you know, it, this is what it is. I, I love it. Um, specifically for writing obstacles, though, for characters, to bring it back to you for a second. And let's use GRQ, I guess, or any, I mean, we've talked about GRQ just because that's the most kind of uh, recent thing to talk about. But anything from your experience in the writing way, when you're coming up with these things, again, are they, and it might start different for each project, but do you, do you sit down and think these are the things I want to put in front of my characters when you're writing personally, or do you find a lot of this as you're writing and there are other priorities that you, that you start with from a writing perspective? Unlike in this film, I would say the basis of drama um, is uh, uh, obstacles and conflict. That if you want to excite an audience and maintain their interest, and this is something that was very important to me in GRQ, um, I made an independent film. I want the audience to watch that independent film. I want them to be glued to the stars, glued to the screen, and for them to care deeply about the character. If the audience doesn't care about your principal character or characters, they're not generally going to be interested in the film. What Lost in Translation does so well is right at the outset, we share uh, the perspective that the characters have on their world. We, too, are lost in a strange place. And what's so wonderful about it, and what I always teach film students and my writing students, is that uh, you should be teaching audiences all the time about things they don't know about. Because audiences, all films in some respects, are mysteries and all films are documentaries. So if you teach someone about wrestling or about how to fly a jet airplane in Top Gun or uh, about um, what Japan is like, and they, then people just watch it and think, oh, I didn't know that about Japan or I didn't know Tokyo was like that, or this is really um, fascinating. So that's one way of maintaining audience interest is teach them about things, but also build an empathic bridge to characters because if the audience sees characters and they say, there before the grace of God go us. Oh, this person is like us. They're as confused as we are. They're on this journey as we are discovering new things. They're frightened as we are. They're weak as we are. They're vulnerable as we are. They're angry like we are. Um, and they're on screen by themselves. That moment a character's on screen by themselves and the audience observes them doing something is a natural empathic bridge. Simple device for all the filmmakers out there. You want your audience to care about a character? Put the character on screen by themselves. Have them looking in the mirror and thinking about that their hair is receding or it's gray. And you see that moment of vulnerability. But it's only that character in the audience, only, um, in a private moment. We have an insight into their interior world and their needs, and then we care about them. You have that empathic bridge, everything pretty much follows thereafter, almost. Because if you just watch a person go through their day, brushing their hair, going to work, going to their job, doing nothing interesting or important. Then after a while, you start losing interest. Brilliant film like Living, the original Japanese one, and the more recent Bill Nye one, which is absolutely superb, um, is about someone living a not very interesting life, at least at the beginning of the film. Uh, mm -hmm. Now, same thing in GRQ. I established an empathic bridge. I have a character right at the beginning of the film who tells an enormous lie. And no one knows he's lying except the audience. And now he's put himself in a position of great risk, I mean, enormous risk. And now, because the, the character's been on the screen by themselves, because we've seen them lie, we have a natural sympathy with that character. 
because we know his secret. And now as yep. people are challenging him and he's being cornered, the tension's building. And it's only building because we care about the character and we care about the character's welfare. And then what I keep building in GRQ is I keep putting more and more obstacles and greater and greater threats. So this character is not only vulnerable, but a character we care about is vulnerable and at greater risk. And then the final thing that I use is I have him lie some more and make mistakes. When you care about a character and you see them make bad judgment and you can't jump into the screen and alter the course of their decision-making, it actually makes you connect to the character even more. So this young Scarlett Johansson is kind of falling in love with Bill Murray. There's a trust between them that they're on this journey of the lost in a lost world, strangers in a strange land, together. And then in a moment of um, ordinary human behavior, he sleeps with the lead singer of a tawdry um, tribute band. Uh, and she comes to his hotel room to go out for, and she realizes someone's there. Now, they haven't slept together, uh, Scholar Hansen and Bill Murray. They're both, they both have other partners. Uh, they've had a chance meeting in a hotel. They have no obligation to each other, but still the sense of profound betrayal that we feel on her behalf and the pity we feel for him at the same time goes to this empathic bridge, but then also this understanding that when you present things in the world that we can intervene in, it makes the audience relate more profoundly to the character, like saying, oh, no, don't do that. Oh, no, I can't believe you did that. So. Yes, in our writing, we introduce obstacles all the time. We introduce behaviors that make that characters sympathetic. Humor works, irony works, vulnerability works. Um, and then we also raise the stakes consistently because we don't want the audience to lose interest. So even though they may have an obstacle at the beginning of the film, if those obstacles don't increase in severity or numerically, then the audience can get bored and uninterested. So, you know, Titanic, it's, it's an iceberg. If it flooded for a minute or two and then floated again, not as much interest. If the boat is sinking <laughs> lower and lower in the water and the life rafts or life boats are not being launched and um, the, we found out the water's cold and we see other people drowning. I mean, it's just a classic example of the stakes increasing, the drama mm -hmm. increasing, the obstacles increasing. And as we see these characters in dilemmas and at risk, um, we're caring more and more about the characters. We see they're, they're in love in Titanic, therefore vulnerable. We know what the nature of love is. We want love to be transcendent, and yet um, this is existential. One of them is about to lose their lives. Uh, that's classic structure. Jericho, same thing. He tells the lies in deep financial trouble, and the world begins closing in on him. And just when you think it get, can't get worse, it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse, and it gets worse. And his judgment gets worse and worse and worse. We can't intervene. There's an empathic bridge. The obstacles are bigger. And although GRQ is not classically structured, it uses classical devices to engage um, audience. Why Lost in Translation is so brilliant, we don't lose interest in this movie, and we should. Yes, she successfully <laughs> builds an empathic bridge by showing these characters as vulnerable. But what happens? He sleeps with a woman. People sleep with each other all the time. Um, she asks, they go out to die in the town in Tokyo. They sing some karaoke. They drink too much. Nothing happens. Um, they come hmm. back to their hotel. He, he does the commercial. Um, she goes to Kyoto with a camera. Nothing happens. And yet, 
we can't take our eyes off the screen. I think it's interesting how we're talking about this. And I, I, from, you know, from the story perspective, I totally agree about nothing happening. I think what's fascinating is there's so much happening at the same time too, that you already, I mean, you've already pointed to this, but uh, thinking of them as characters and what these characters are going through, they're not doing much on screen. Like the things you just mentioned, they go to a party, they go to an apartment, they, they wander the city. There's not, there's not much action as far as what's happening, but the assumption, and you can see the other brilliant thing about this is the nuances of the actors and their facial expressions and how they're conveying things. Because even though there's not much action in the story, there's obviously and clearly so much going on internally for these two characters as they kind of move through this story. And that's what you're seeing. Those are the things that you're seeing happen, uh, you know, with them. Um, so, okay. So to stay they, on, they don't, they don't speak, which is significant. I don't mean to jump on that, but, but all the times when a character normally would speak, these characters are silent. Um, there's uh, the, the shallow little actress that comes visiting Japan who keeps saying these incredibly banal things about um, yoga and uh, colonic cleansing and all the rest of it. And you're waiting for Scarlett Johansson to say something extremely rude to her. She doesn't. Mm. Um, she goes to Kyoto and observes people's behavior and doesn't really say anything. Bill Murray's doing the, the Centauri commercial, and he asks some questions about what the guy's saying, but he doesn't stand up and throw a drink and say, speak to me directly. Or he just, they just you keep waiting for them to say something, and they keep not saying anything. And as the relationship develops, you keep waiting for them to say something, and they don't say anything. And finally, when they say something significant, it's whispered and unheard. Uh, brilliant. Yeah. Okay. So staying here, Scarlett and Scarlett Johansson and Bill Murray. Let's let's stay on them for a second, then, because the, you know, again, talking about all the ingredients that make a film, actors. Uh, we've talked about this before, but you know, characters on the page, you find the right actors, and it, it becomes something, you know, something different. Um, and this is another film, just like Lady Bird, where this is another relationship, this duo that is the central to the film and its emotional depth and everything. Like we're with these two characters the whole time. Um, so we, we've touched a little bit, uh, last episode, we talked a little bit about uh, interacting with actors as a director and how to, how to kind of finesse that relationship. But I'm, I'm curious uh, when it comes to actors and especially when it's this type of dynamic relationship that has to, has to really go well, how involved are you as a director to help craft this type of individual and collective performance? Are you hands off? Are you in there helping them talk through their character development? Like how involved are you? I do a, a few things um, because to my mind, performance only works if you see the humanity of the actor in the character. And by humanity, I mean all of us. As you and I talk, both off-screen and on-screen, we're getting to know each other better. We're discovering things about each other's personal lives, about our caprices, our, our, our individual obstacles. Um, and we're both open and guarded at the same time. What will we share? What won't we share? We're imperfect. I will lose my train of thought, stutter about something, um, we'll be distracted, we'll be tangential, we'll go from issues to issues that are sensibly unrelated one to the other. 
that's the nature of real conversation. And audiences, even if they can't articulate it, can identify real from artifice. And when an actor is over-rehearsed, over-practiced, I don't do rehearsals. I never do rehearsals. When they're only doing the lines and they are skilled at that, we still sense that there's not an absolute genuineness to the performance. But when an actor isn't fully rehearsed, integrates improvisation to the reading of the lines, which I think is essential, suddenly goes off on some tangent as a result of the writing or something they themselves invent on the set. We recognize the way we really communicate with each other rather than the way people communicate in movies sometimes. And that makes the performance real and therefore effective. So what I do with my actors is when I write the script, I also write a backstory for each character and not a manipulative backstory. I'm not writing the backstory to get them to build up to an emotional climax in an individual scene. You know, your brother died in an accident, the sawmill. Now you're later in the script, you're going by a sawmill. How are you feeling? No, it's, it's, I just talk about first romances, about what it was like in the parental home, if there was a parental home, whether you grew up in a middle class or working class or community, whether there was religiosity or not. Uh, I talk generally and specifically uh, and completely obliquely and non-linearly about a series of events that we, as we do, remember, half-remember, or don't remember at all. That's the nature of our cumulative lies that lead to the creation of our adult character. And I give that to the actors, not to arm them, but as something that can potentially inform individual moments within the film, not all the moments. But it's not structured, it's intentionally not structured, because I don't want to force the actor to divine my intention and say, oh, I see what he's trying to do here. This guy is um, angry, but really has a heart of gold. I don't want the characters that to find. Even when I give actors notes, I do the thing that no director is meant to do. Never. Which is give conflicting notes. Contradictory ones. Uh, you want to do, as a director, give what's called playable notes. Uh, that's what's so funny about the Centauri scene, is that more intensity is not playable. It's one of those worst notes that you can give, like, okay, let's do it again, but bigger. What's bigger? Do you mean louder? Do you mean faster? Do you mean more intensity? It's it's unplayable. Uh, if, however, the, act, the actor has a uh, an obstacle and um, he's got to convince someone of something, you can say to an actor as a playable note, sell them the idea that you should go for it. Sell it to them. Selling is playable. Um, frighten this person. Um, make this person love you. Harder but still playable. Uh, make yourself appealing. Playable. But if you give someone a contradictory note, um, frighten this person but make them love you. Um, people say it confuses an actor. 
and it's not playable. But that's kind of my intention in that it's playable in parts and it's playable, but without a consistency. And it may be playable at one moment, the other note's playable another moment, the way people talk, because their emotions can be contradictory. And that's what I'm trying to get to is this vermissitude of performance, that these inconsistencies, this confusion of speech and of understanding, these half-remembered notions of how you've organized the world based on your past, all these things conspire together to create your behaviors in the world. And if I can invest my characters with that via the actors as the vessels of these ideas, and if the actors, I should say, attribute to them, do their own research and their own backstory and bring their own notions and their own experiences, because it's a cumulative thing, me helping them doing, uh, then we arrive at a character that I think is more fully realized and recognized with the audience as someone who lives and breathes and thinks and is like us and therefore um, is genuine. So that's how I work with actors. Backstory is everything to me. And I reference backstory in my notes to them. And then my own vulnerability and openness. Uh, the way a good director works is to create a, a working environment that's safe so that actors can take risks and um, fail without fear of retribution or ridicule. Ridicule, the ultimate fascism, because it affects behavior. Um, and if people are frightened of ridicule, the ultimate fascism, but it's a type of fascism, then it forces people to behave in certain ways so they can avoid uh, ridicule. That doesn't happen in my sense. Actors have the opportunity to take risks, to put the boat out after two takes of the, the shot script or the three, three takes of the written script, rather. They have the opportunity to improvise based on our backstory and arrive at something else. Um, if you can do that, as they did, I think it was a lot of improvisation in Lost in Translation, then I think you discover mm -hmm. a truth uh, and the audience sees that truth and the film is more effective for them. So this might be too in the weeds and we don't have to use this, but I'm, I'm, I'm just personally curious. Do you, so using backstory, do you have these, uh, these things that you're saying, do you have these kind of conversations directly with the actors? And, and like, is that on the day when you're actually filming? Is that, you said you don't rehearse. So I'm assuming there's no real time before you show up to set. So are these conversations happening in between shooting? Like, how does that actually work on the day? Well, um, I should say uh, we don't do a formal rehearsal weeks before shooting. The backstory will go to them the same time or shortly thereafter the script will. And on GRQ, I sent them mm. backstory. I sent them the script. And I sent them the novel that I wrote on which the film is based. Because the novel mm. gets into much more detail about what's happened to the characters. And then we would have a series of conversations, um, Greg, Mina, myself, individually, never together, uh, about <laughs> who the characters are and what they make me feeling and thinking. And Mina did her research in preparation and came with some notions about who she felt the character was. And Greg did it. And we would speak on the phone. Never rehearsals of scenes. Never, oh, I like that line reading or this line reading. It's dangerous stuff. Because the worst thing that can happen to you in a rehearsal is an actor gets a line right and you say, Perfect. And then what happens on the day that you're shooting is the actor is not in the moment. Rather, they're trying to remember what they did on the day that you said perfect. And then right away, mm. you've lost um, what you're actually looking for. So that's the reason I don't personally rehearse. Doesn't mean I don't prepare them for the most profound or deep or fully realized understanding of their character. 
but we don't practice the scenes. So there's a spontaneity on the day, of course, the improvisations come literally at that moment. So I'll say, okay, let's improvise. And then I'll say, and by the way, what happens in normal speech is people overlap. Overlapping is the essential, essential to the understanding of improvisation because it's much more organic and natural when two people are speaking of each other. It creates tensions and energies, um, which are, I think, compelling. That's great. Okay. So let's, uh, let's shift a bit, or I'm, if you don't mind, if you're up for it, let's shift a bit. Uh, the, uh, this film, so back to kind of Lost in Translation and, and the film in general, it is, you know, film being a visual medium, this film is, among other things, beautiful to watch visually. Uh, and then there's also just, it's, 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 uh, it's filled with, with symbolism as well, visual symbolism. So uh, the visual el elements of a film is, is where I want to kind of go next. So Lost in Translation, it uses... Uh, it specifically uses visual symbolism to reflect basically the inner states of these characters that we're watching. And then specifically the use of, or particularly the use of Tokyo's cityscape. So we have a lot of scenes in this this film where it's, again, we pointed to it, where there's no dialogue, there's nothing going on, except for these characters riding in a car, essentially, looking out the window, and the city is passing them by. And it's just beautifully done. And you get an understanding of the city, you get an understanding of the energy, but then also without any dialogue or anything pointing to it, you, you start to understand uh, what these characters are feeling uh, just by observing them. And back to Sofia Coppola, her use of these visuals was even, you know, it was praised for the ability to convey these, these complex emotions. So as a writer director, uh, but also with an extensive background in cinematography, uh, like you have from a visual perspective, <laughs> When do you personally actually start to see the film? Is it, is it in your head when you start writing? Is it when you're storyboarding? Is it when you actually show up on set, a first edit? When do you actually start getting the visuals in your head of what you're making? It's a really great question, Vince, because um, it's a mixture. Um, it's both early in the process when I'm writing, I'm thinking about the visuals, because I did have a background in cinematography, I'm obsessed about art. And go back to this notion that I want the audience to experience the film as if it's the way they experience the world. And why this film is so significant to me is it says repeatedly, you can't know the world fully because it's presented in codes that you may not understand, like in Japanese language. But not just Japanese language. We don't know whether there's God in the world or not. I mean, does everything, people have said to me yesterday when I was having a tough time, everything has a reason. Does it? Does it? Are you sure? Um, that's cool that you're sure. It must make life much easier. I'm not sure. Um, when we read about conflicts and wars, is there a purpose in that? When a child dies um, in pain, um, is there a purpose um, in that? When we ourselves are sick, is there a purpose in that? I don't know, maybe. But generally, most of the time, I think the world is chaos and confused and has no uh, obvious order except one that we impose on it. And so to that, to my mind, then, cinematography comes closer to our experience of the world than writing does. Because as writers, we're inclined to provide explanations. 
here's why this character behaved this way. Here's their motivation. Here's their childhood trauma of here's why they've got to save the world. Here's the enemy. Here's the enemy they have to overcome. Here's order. That's what writers do very often is they provide order. But images by their nature are enigmatic. So when you have a character in a car looking out a window and you're in a foreign country, you're in Japan, and you look at it, you're moved by it, you're overwhelmed by it, you don't see anything like it. But what do you understand? You're, you can look at something in wonder, but not understanding. So you can look at the bright lights of Tokyo, you can see people speaking, but most of you are thinking, those signs, I don't know what they say because they're another language. They're behaviors of why these people behave or bow or behave in the way I don't fully understand. This food, I don't know what's good and what isn't. So we feel slightly frightened and at risk by things that we see that we don't understand. They're contradictory and they're not certain. Um, when it's five o'clock in the afternoon in Los Angeles, after a wet afternoon, the sky is orange and we're near the sea, we feel something move within us. We feel affected. But if I ask you to quantify that sense of vague melancholy and say specifically what it is, we can't identify it. And that's what images do, is that they have enigmatic meanings because they're not specific. They don't speak to us. And by their, their code being more general than specific, it's more like our, it's the way we uh, try to figure out the world. You know, the more we write, the less we mean, because we narrow things down and become very specific. The reason haiku or poetry is more full of meaning is we say less. It's not prose. It's not specific. So when we read a poem, we can be moved for a poem because it's kind of a generalized presentation of the world or a feeling. Whereas a scientific journal that breaks things down into you know, an, an empirical examination of a single notion is pretty clear, but not necessarily profound. Those things that we have within our breasts that we have a hard time defining, but that move us profoundly, uh, I think cinematography and photography and painting and music are more closely related to those visceral elements than is prose. So to answer your question, from the very beginning, I think about images, but I recognize that when I use images, I'll be moving my audience, but I can't be specific because by its nature, it's not specific. Have you ever had a specific visual in your head that actually made it all the way into the, the final, final film, the, like as close as possible? Better question. I, I assume, yeah. you know, one, the things that we see in our head are obviously in our head. And then there's so many layers and steps to translate those into something like putting it out into an output, whether it be film or music video or whatever. Has there ever been something that you've seen in your head that you were able to, as close to 100% as possible, get on that final screen? Yeah. Um, years ago, I shot a music video um, for David Sylvian. It was a band called Japan. and we hit on the idea, we're looking for something that went to these very notions we're talking about, about our disconnect from the physical world, how when we experience the world at certain times, we find it more frightening or disturbing than others. And we're particularly interested in the idea of things being out of focus, 
that when, if you wear glasses and you wake up in the morning, you have glasses, you hear a noise. Uh, something's in your bedroom. You sit up and you see something that's out of focus at the end of your bed before you put your glasses on. It's uh, terrifying. When we're drunk or on drugs and suddenly our eyes can't focus and we sense that we're in some danger, it's uh, terrifying. When it's nighttime and it's dark and we can't see things and we, we hear things, we're terrified because we can't um, see them. So we had on the idea that we would shoot the, the, the music video entirely out of focus and then periodically hmm. roll the focus through so we see the artist for a millisecond, but the rest would be out of focus. And that combined with the emotive nature of the music, which was strange and surreal and sometimes atonal, but also romantic, it had a profound effect on the audience. We found our object relative in shooting a major music video 90% out of focus. That's one example. Years later, when uh, Pat Jenkins and I were doing Monster together, I got this sense when I was in Central Florida, what, the sense of humidity there, the sense of dampness, and then for older buildings of rot, of genuine corruption, of something falling apart, was emblematic of our central character story. So as we are doing what we call B-roll, uh, the additional shooting that doesn't involve the characters, a lot of the times we were, there's lots of pictures of me on, on Monster wearing these raincoats because it was raining all the time. But I would go out in a car sometimes and my second unit cinematographer would, uh, or sometimes just we would, we would be on the, the, the trailer doing some stuff with, uh, with Charlize uh, and Christina. And then I would just turn the camera and point it at these buildings where I would see paint peeling, uh, where I saw collapsed roofs, uh, where I just saw the filth of discarded fast food in a puddle by the side of the road. And I would photograph and then ended up in the movie. Hmm. We had nothing specific in mind, except a prevailing sense of the decay that these characters and really all of us live in to a certain degree, because anything built will collapse, anything living will die. Um, and all flesh, you know, will ultimately rot and deteriorate over time. That's, uh, our, our shared um, condition. And then um, later in, uh, in GRQ, um, my most recent film, uh, I, this guy locks himself in this room. And we worked really hard with our production designer to, because now we're creating the image rather than just capturing it, um, of this sense of a man in his man cave, in his space, of trying to preserve parts of his world about what's precious to him. So we put all these things that were emblematic of supposed value. But also, this is a guy who used busyness to obscure the fact that he was doing nothing at all, going back to one of our central themes today about nothing happening. So he had all these screens everywhere with financial markets on it everywhere. Um, and information bombarding them. And I was trying to represent our experience of the world because though we may not find meaning, we certainly find noise and mayhem. And very often we mistake the mayhem of experience for forward progress. So we created mayhem on the set. There's so much information being 
bombarding the audience, I should say, uh, that we portray um, from news stories to earthquakes to, as I said, the financial markets, that just like all of us in real life, the character didn't know which way to look and determine what was important and what wasn't important. You know, there's, there's a great philosophic divide between Eisenstein and Bazin, the two early film philosophers, Bazin much later, about the way you should shoot a scene. And Eisenstein said, shoot it in parts, close up, close up. Uh, then the object, you know, the famous Potemkin steps, where uh, we see the woman with the baby carriage, we see the wheel of the baby carriage, we see the soldiers, we see the rifles, and we tell the story with the camera. That's that visual, to your point that you're making, how we see visually. But Bazin would say, now let's create a mise-en-scene where we use a wide shot, and then many things can be happening in the wide shot simultaneously, and leave it to the audience to pick out that which is important. That's more like what they do in real life. And I guess this goes to all this about when you present something to the audience, you don't have to cut to the insert of the key story point. You can create a general sense of uh, decay or a sense of overstimulation or too much data and information, uh, all with a shot without being specific to an individual meaning or story point and just create a feeling. And that's what cinematography is so often about. And so, yes, in all my writing and all the work that I do, I'm always thinking about the visuals and recognize that though they're enigmatic, they're significant because they replicate our experience to work. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, I, I had 30 questions from, from all of what you just said, but let's move, I'm gonna, for the sake of time, let's, I'm going to move to the, the last question that I have before talking about the ending, because the ending I, wanna, I definitely want to focus on. Um, but this last one, uh, it's, so, it's around themes. Uh, and even though that's broad, I, I'm, I'm, I have a really specific thing that I'm curious about from your experience. So, you know, going back, bringing it back to Lost in Translation, the film explores just a variety of themes, and one of which uh, is the kind of fleeting nature of human connections. And this theme obviously resonated with wide audiences because it was just how it was received and, and still talked about to this day uh, from a critique perspective. So I usually don't like two-part questions, but I feel like these two go together. Um, so as a, as a creative person, uh, are there certain themes that resonate with you more than others? And then as a filmmaker, are you drawn to those, those themes that are of personal interest when you're looking for projects? Or is it more pragmatic? Great question again, and so much of what you and I have talked about, Vince, um, both off camera and on camera. We don't, you and I just don't talk about film. We talk about what's important to us. And what's great about what we're doing here is it is replicating all creative processes, is we're trying to figure out uh, what is important to us. We're trying to figure out what will be of value to an audience. We're both aware of audience, and we're aware of ourselves. We're going to be spending time doing this. And if we're spending time, then we want it to have value. We want to have value for our audience so we can attract audience, but we want it to have value to ourselves. Otherwise, why do it? And it's not just um, whether it be monetized or not. It's what does this explanation do, exploration do for both of us um, creatively? 
so for me, what I'm looking for in the creative process and in writing and in these podcasts and by speaking, because when I speak, and the reason I value it, why I do it so much, is not the narcissism that I think many people presume, although I'm sure, like all of us, I've got a healthy dose of um, toxic narcissism. It's to do with there's something in the process of speaking that makes me organize my ideas and that way organize the world. The reason I like to talk about art is it helps me organize the world. When I write, I have said this here before and I've said elsewhere, I write to discover what I mean, not to express what I mean. Because I don't know what I mean until I begin writing. I don't know who my characters are until I'm shooting them. I may write backstory and my actors may presume that I know exactly who the characters are, but until I see them on set and speaking, I don't really understand who they are completely. To me, the process is the process of discovery. And so many people think you write a screenplay, that you then shoot the screenplay, and the screenplay makes the film. To my mind, as I write, I'm figuring things out. Then when I start working with the actors, I'm figuring things out. And then when I'm in the editing room, I'm figuring things out. And what I finish with is a kind of understanding at that particular moment, but I still don't have things figured out. As I've experienced other people's deaths, what struck me repeatedly, besides the tragedy of it all and how unfairly brief any life is, is the confusion on the faces of the people that I love that they passed. And if there's one thing I didn't want to happen at the end of all of this is confusion. Because if there's a comfort in death, it would be, I've lived the life I was meant to live. There's a place that I'm going to. My life had purpose. Um, I've changed other people's lives. I've done good deeds, and therefore I feel some sense of satisfaction. That's what I want to see on people's faces. Not the pain of whatever their final malady is, and certainly not the absolute confusion I've seen on all their faces. Like, what does this mean? So I think for me, and maybe for all of us, to use Viktor Frankl's quotation as Bentab's book, it's our search for meaning. Trying to figure out, not just glibly, um, how slickly I can make films. Syracuse are really well-made film. Got lots of drama, lots of obstacles, lots of conflict, lots of comedy. That doesn't mean it's the film by which I have figured the world out. I don't have it figured out. My film previous to that, Dominion or Last Call, the one about Dylan Thomas, the poet, which is semi-autographical, autobiographical. I'm certainly not Dylan Thomas, but we shared some of the same uh, issues. Um, the character talks probably too much but examines lots of big notions about what is to be an artist and what is to be uh, have complex feelings and be consistent morally. And still, even after I did that and finished it and ended, I still didn't have the world uh, figured out. It, to me, my relationship to the world is closer to cinematography than it is to writing, even though I'm a writer. Because I can photograph something and it can move me or move people that see it without us understanding it. It's like there's some responsive chord that is struck that affects us profoundly, but we don't know what that chord is, and we don't know even fully what the feeling is, but we know it is resonant and profound. 
So that's what I feel about all of this and about writing, about filmmaking is I don't have it figured out and it's a process of trying to figure things out, a desperation to figure it out so that um, I can wake up each morning with purpose. Uh, and that's just the purpose of I've got to do these small group of things, the little list that we produce in our little notebooks or our computers, but a more profound sense of purpose as to what this journey is about, which is why that. this film is such a masterpiece. It, these characters don't have purpose. They are, not, take each part of that title, take the first part, lost. They are lost. And rather than using the word translation, um, change the word translation to search for meaning. So the film could have been lost in the search for meaning because translation is creating meaning out of unconnected signifiers. So these characters are lost and looking for meaning. I love that. You've pointed to this, and I feel like we're here now. So let's let's talk about the ending of of this movie. Um, the The end of this movie is, you know, within film is one of the most talked about kind of endings of of a movie, uh, specifically because of the open endedness and the ambiguity that it leaves uh, with the characters and story and just all the things. You have no idea what happens after this, and such a remarkable way and you've talked about this already at the beginning at the kind of top of this episode but um i want to focus on the the ending specifically so the the conclusion of this movie it invites just all sorts of various interpretations and you know there's even websites and there's everything dedicated to the ending of this movie specifically nowadays of of how you know what did they say how did it end what was the the resolution and it's the ambiguity in the ending uh, that has actually been like one of the biggest topics of discussion and analysis uh, since it came out. So this is this this last question is uh, about creative process, which we've talked uh, a bit about so far on and off uh, camera. So the ending of this this movie and endings in general, when it comes to film and writing and, and crafting uh, and process as a writer or as as any hat that you want to that you want to wear. When do you know, when do you actually know how to end a story hmm. within the process, uh, whether writing or directing, like, do you start with an ending? Do you find it again as you, as you move through the story? Uh, is it a collaboration? Like, how does that ending come to you? Another great question. <laughs> the two hardest things for you and I as well, by the way, um, so we're talking about death before death is kind of the ending of all things, isn't it? And if we had to write our own life stories, I guess at the end, we just as our, we're losing consciousness, we open our eyes for a moment and we say, I know the meaning of life. I've just, it's just been revealed to me. And someone leans in um, so that we can whisper the explanation. And if it was like the end of lost neurization, we then die just before we say it. Um, or, let me tell you where the family treasure is buried. It's go by the old oak, turn right, and then we die. Um, endings are hard because beginnings of films and endings of films have a disproportionate significance to the rest of the movie. The beginning, we have to introduce the characters, build that empathic bridge that I mentioned, maybe introduce conflict, uh, get the audience to care about what's going to happen. 
and then invest in the overcoming of those obstacles if there are obstacles to be had, unlike in Boston translation. The end is what the audience will remember. Uh, and it is the moment where the audience is most aware, even if they can't articulate the fact they're aware of it, of the director speaking them directly. Because at the end of the film, it's as if the audience is saying, the director says to the audience, and here's what this was all about. I know we've been this long journey. You may be confused. I've introduced many elements and conflicts, and you're not sure who's right or wrong or good or bad. But now we're at the end. Here's the resolution and the explanation, because people are used to films being self-contained. So they're, they shift in their seats, their antenna are altered, and they wait for the coda, for the explanation as to all that went before. It could be usual suspects, and there's the big twist and the reveal of who uh, Kaiser Social was, for example. Or it could be, um, you know, are these characters going to hook up? Are they going to fall in love? Or is the end of La La Land, which is one of the great endings, where, uh, again, talk about Indiomatic, she's married someone else, but not fully sure why they parted um, and stayed part for so long. She comes into his club. He's realized what he wanted. She's realized what she's wanted. But part of what they both wanted was each other. And that has been sacrificed in the pursuit of the other thing they've got. And there's this incredible exchange, make me cry even think about it, where the bittersweet sense of loss that time provides that we can alter anything except that which has already passed. And they look at each other with some memory and regret, but know that she's not going to give up her family and her children. He can't alter that. He can't alter it, the course of his life. And that what is gone is gone and there's a sadness there. Uh, if that had happened earlier in the film, the audience would have kind of shrugged and said, now what's going to happen? Now we'll see the, the aspects, the other aspects of their lives. But it happens right at the end. And we're left with the idea that this is now forever. Because when a film finishes, that world, we depart. And it will be left in that condition for all eternity. So at the end of Love, actually, what's so satisfying is, except for poor Laura Linney, um, everybody finds their right life partner. They are in love. And the subtext from the brilliant Richard Curtis, if but it was true, bless him, is that all you've got to do is fall in love with the right person and you'll be happy. And he has this wonderful montage of everyone hugging and kissing in an airport at the end of the film. And you have a sense of satisfaction because now what he leaves you with is all you need is love. Hmm. And if you find love, then you'll be happy. And that's the way the film ends. If he had done that montage early in the film and then all these other events happened, it would not have been profound or significant. But he leaves us with the idea that at least for this world that we have been observing, all these characters needed was love and all is right with the world. What's beautiful about the complex ending of Lost in Translation is the world we're left with is one in which the answers are not provided to us. Mm -hmm. They are whispered and they are unheard, and we don't know what it all means. We don't know whether it gets easier, as to her question, or whether he knows something that she doesn't, 
He may have just said, I love you, or gives us something banal like, when I get to Chicago, I'll phone you, we'll both leave our spouses and marry. But he's not saying that. He's saying something else, which we don't hear, and that's why it's so brilliant. So yeah, to your question, your brilliant question, we pour as writers over the endings because we know that it's going to be the crescendo, it's going to be the climax, it's going to be the payoff, and everyone's listening to our voice as a director, writer, speaking to them at that moment about our worldview and about the view of those individual um, characters. So let me ask you as a, as a viewer, mm. did you find the ending of either my film, GRQ, which also ends kind of enigmatically in that he does some, I don't want to give the film away to the audience, but there's a sense that something's about to begin again, mm. um, if you recall. But for the end of Lost in Translation, were you frustrated or charmed or were you angry you couldn't hear what they said? See, this is, <clears throat> I guess my first thought is I always, I, I know that I, nowadays I know that I watch film differently or watch movies differently than, than a lot of people. Um, and what I'm kind of taking in and, and all the things I, th I think is different in, in a way. Um, but the ending of Lost in Translation, just like most scenes or things that I notice like it, I get incredibly excited uh, when, I, when I feel like I understand a decision, like when I see a decision being made by the filmmaker, uh, I, that really excites me. So the ending of Lost in Translation it is what it is, but I, the way that I see it and the way that I watch it, it's this realization of this person, you know, Sofia Coppola, this director, this filmmaker, making a choice to end the film in the way that it is. And when I, when I, when I see and think of it in that way, especially in the first time that I'm seeing it, and I realize that, it's, it's incredibly exciting to me. And not even, it doesn't even bring me out of the film. It's just, it's this extra layer of, uh, involvement in the film where I feel like I'm not just watching it anymore. Like I'm understanding who's saying what and what she's trying to do and what they're trying to put out there and the decision that they're making to end the film in this way, because it's, it is different than a traditional uh, choice. So when I see that uh, it's, it's very exciting for me and it makes me enjoy it even more and it brings it to a whole nother level. Um, so no, there's, at least for me, there was no frustration at all. I think it's beautiful how it ends. And, uh, and maybe even from a pre preference side, I, I, like, I like it more that it's left like it is than specifically put out there for you to, to you know, be told what it is or understand. And when you when look at just, I'm just interested, when you look at a film like Love Actually that ends with this very happy, upbeat, you know, mm -hmm. all you need is love, et cetera, which makes me happy, I have to admit. I don't know if mm -hmm. the world's actually like that. I wish it was. Are you frustrated by that ending? Or do you find it oddly satisfying, even if you don't agree with its philosophy? Yeah, again, just such a unique or such a specific example, because love actually, I actually loved how I immediately noticed how like at the very beginning of the film, you actually see B-roll while there's, while there's, uh, I'm pretty sure, while there's um, a voiceover going on at the very beginning of the film to set it up. And that. Yeah airport b-roll is actually how it caps as well at the end it's like the same type but just a different voiceover or, or, or message so that was actually the first thing that i noticed and again same thing happened it was like a it was a decision i was seeing the decision being made this like well thought out start to end thing that's now resolving at the end 
So, I mean, it was also, you know, if we're talking about it for me personally, that was actually the piece of the film that it turned a little commercial. So I was, I was not turned off, but it, it, that was something that I noticed that kind of brought me out of the, I don't know, the, the vibe of the overall movie. It felt a little different and disconnected slightly, but I also got what they were trying to do. So yeah, that was, that's how I experienced it. Interesting. Um, you want some trivia? Yeah, my favorite part. <laughs> so let's see, trivia. Sofia Coppola, the writer and director, actually wrote this lead role specifically for Bill Murray uh, and later said that wow. uh, if Murray actually turned it down, she wouldn't have done the movie. So, you know, who knows how interviews go and, and, and things like that. But I thought that was pretty fascinating that, uh, you know, from a writing perspective, and you hear this happening sometimes, but um, she wrote this character specifically for a specific actor, which obviously there's no guarantee. And especially with Bill Murray, because another fun fact is, and this is probably why or this is widely known now, but Bill Murray is known for not actually committing to projects. And, and, and it's said that some, you know, at times they never even know if he's going to show up until the day of production. So I thought that was... That's uh, the famous story that Bill Murray was, I think one of the film he was in that was quite successful. Maybe it was this one. They didn't know. They started the film. They didn't know where he was going to show up until the day that he actually showed up, which is, I don't know if it's apocryphal or real, but if it's real, it's kind of cool. It's also kind of horrifying because it takes so much prep, you know, wardrobe, uh, you need sizes. It may or may not be true, but that's kind of scary. But I know. And as a um, fan, like I appreciate the fantasy around it because it's fun to think about. And like, oh, this is like this person that's just in his own world and is, he shows up if he wants to. But then also from a, <laughs> a planning and strategy perspective, that's, that seems terrible for, for the people that are involved yeah, in actually making the thing question. happen. Yeah. Okay. Uh, also, so this film, Sofia Coppola became the first woman to be Oscar nominated for writing, directing, and producing in the same year. And of course she won uh, for best original screenplay. Uh, what else? There's one, the entire budget, you might, might be interesting. Entire budget for the film was 4 million. Uh, and it ended up grossing almost 120 worldwide. Nice little. That's a good return. That's why everyone should invest in independent movies all the time. So when we next phone you up and say, "Here's an opportunity," remember that you make a film for and make a hundred three because that's that may happen. Of course, that's the case. Most of the time, it doesn't, but it would be nice if it does. It's a nice case study. Yeah. <laughs> uh, let's see one more before the the whisper. Um, ah. Again, all the pieces of the puzzle. So Bill Murray's wife, which you never see, it's all, it's all through phone conversation in the film. The voice of his wife was actually done by the film's costume designer. Huh. Yeah. Fantastic. All right. So, and last but not least, the, uh, the ending scene that we've been talking about, uh, of course, we've already said that we don't know what he actually whispers. There are... Uh, there are top contenders in the internet uh, for the top three guesses of what he actually says to her at the end. So reverse order, number three, the top guess of what he whispers in her ear is, quote, when John is waiting on the next business trip, go up to that man and tell him the truth. Okay. Completely random, but that's, that's number three. Number two gets a little closer to what the, the film is, is trying to say, I think. And it's, uh, quote, you'll always be an independent woman. Don't part mad tell the truth okay and then the number one top guess for what he actually whispers in her ear is i have to be leaving but i won't let that come between us okay which is my favorite 
Yeah, I hear all that, but that's going back to what we were saying about poetry before, which is um, they're all kind of prosaic. And the beauty is, is in the enigma, because it could be something poetical. To my mind, he would have quoted something from um, a poet, um, maybe it's from John Donne or Rambo or something, something oblique and strange and magical that she'd have to ruminate on for the rest of her days. A man she met, never heard from again the rest of her life, who left her something. Um, um, he could have just said, it's Santoro time, and then left. You know, <laughs> <so much. laughs> oh, that's my um, new favorite ending. <laughs> oh, that's good. Um, I think he does understand something of not their relationship, what their plan is, but what this all means. He might just be saying, it doesn't mean anything but it doesn't mean you should stop. It's the enigma. Like you talked about the visual, what we're left with at the end of the film is not writing, but a visual. And that goes exactly mm. to the nature of visuals. It is enigma, and that is the beauty of it.